welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So today joining me on the podcast, we've got Damon Powell. Damon is the current chair of the Scottish Mountain Rescue Organisation. Prior to that, he was Owen Mountain Rescue Team's team leader for 12 years and has been involved in mountain rescue in Scotland for 21 years now. Day job-wise, he runs a holiday cottage and used to be a mathematician. So a pretty varied background, but spends a, a fair chunk of his time in the hills. Damon, thanks very much for coming on to chat to us. Thank you for inviting me. So I guess for your average basics responder the interface between basics and mountain rescue is it's pretty rare but often at kind of roadside jobs so really what we're going to try and unpick today is a what mountain rescue brings to the party and b how we can work together let's have a look at smr the scottish mountain rescue organization first and then we can we can talk about team level stuff in a second so Scottish Mountain Rescue, probably the first thing to be aware of is that Scottish Mountain Rescue doesn't do any rescues. Those are done by teams across Scotland. And Scottish Mountain Rescue represents 28 of the 32 teams that are spread across Scotland. And the individual teams cover every part of geographic Scotland, excepting possibly the Orkneys and Shetland, although there is some precedent for them being flown out to there as well. So Scottish Mountain Rescue is, if you like, a coordinating body. It's there as a framework and a structure. It provides a framework for teams to discuss, organise, coordinate between each other. It provides a structure for teams to represent themselves on a national level. Most of the major national organisations really don't want to discuss things with sub-32 different teams. So it's our job to represent them nationally and try and ensure that there's as good a framework for them to work in as possible. We also provide a structure for national training. We're certainly not a governing body. What we're doing is providing and collecting best practice, really. So we use comparisons between teams in Scotland. We look at what is going on in teams across the rest of the UK and we're involved internationally to make certain that all those ideas are filtered back down and made available for the teams within Scotland. We also do some fundraising nationally with organisations that are probably too big to be interested in individual local teams. And let's say primarily it's a coordination role that uh, we do and we I suppose, particularly in the last six months, do quite a lot of representation and messaging to the general public who very often see all the teams just as Scottish Mountain Rescue. And I think probably we get a little bit obsessed with the different separate teams. The public just think there is Scottish Mountain Rescue and they have to learn a little bit more to go beyond that. So they see Scottish Mountain Rescue and in general they think that's a good thing. But they certainly don't separate it out beyond that. I guess to most of you guys, it's just knowing that there is a, a group of people who will respond if they dial 999 and that their interest doesn't stretch much beyond that. No, absolutely. They want to know that if they get in difficulty in the hills, there's going to be somebody that will come and help them. And that is the case that always will be, hopefully. Now, 
without kind of diving into the politics, you mentioned that SMR, uh, Scottish Mountain Rescue, is sort of responsible for 28 of the 32 teams in Scotland. Just explain how the difference between those numbers works. So there are four teams at the moment that feel that they are best representing themselves, so they're not members of Scottish Mountain Rescue and we don't represent them. And that's their choice. Nobody has to be a member. And I think the key point is that actually when it comes to boots on the ground, it really doesn't make any difference and nobody will notice the difference because whether it's one of the teams that isn't a member of SMR at the moment or it's teams that are, they still work together where they've got joint borders. Teams are very good at backing up and supporting each other and responding to it. So I think it's more of an administrative thing than anything that people on the ground ever need to worry about. Absolutely. And I think that's probably worth reinforcing because there was various bits of publicity during those initial phases. But certainly my experience from being on one of the independent teams is that nothing really has changed on the ground and everyone still works together as they always used to. Yeah, I think that's the case. There will be a team who where the incident is within their area and they'll coordinate it and they will have neighbouring teams that they work with probably on a fairly regular basis who are happy to come in and support them where they need more manpower for whatever reason. And that's still the case. Fantastic. So let's zoom in a little bit from the national level and look at an individual team, your generic Scottish team, if there is such a thing. What sort of capabilities do you get within a rescue team? I think teams are a really important word within rescue because there are very few people that will carry the whole skill set. But rescue teams are primarily there to work in remote locations or locations that are difficult to access and require a specialist skill set. So it might be on a cliff, it might be in a gorge, it might be up a mountain in hostile weather might even be on a road if the weather is particularly challenging, but it's primarily to do with access. And then within that, the team will have a range of different skill sets. So it will have some people that have chosen to focus medically, and everybody in a rescue team will have basic first aid training and qualifications that they'll be expected to renew and keep on top of. And then there'll be some people that choose to do first aid training to a slightly higher level and then quite often there'll be professional medics of some type in teams as well so there's a medical strand there's also a technical group who will take the lead in areas that are difficult to access that might require rope work or might be more challenging in winter there'll be other people usually sort of more senior people in the team that possibly spend more time understanding search management techniques to optimise our search strategies when we're looking for people. And there may be people who have search dogs in teams, which we have two separate organisations that are responsible for. We've also got an organisation that looks at the use of drones in mountain rescue and in remote areas. So another skill set that can be deployed So there's a range of skills there and the team will try and coordinate and ensure that the appropriate skills for that incident are deployed when requested. And presumably the exact mix that you get is going to be a little bit dependent on the team whose patch you're in, a little bit dependent on who's available. Yeah, so you can expect the same generic skill set with every team, I think. They're they're all 
competent and proficient within those skill sets. But the way they do things and which ones they specialize in might be slightly dictated by where they are, the nature of the terrain they've got, the type of incidents they have. So some teams definitely end up specializing a little bit more than others in certain things. And yeah, I think a key point is that mountain rescue teams are solely volunteers and in general operate on a on call 24 hours a day 365 days a year and so you can't guarantee who's going to turn up you will respond if you're available but you don't guarantee availability all the time so a lot of teams will operate to maybe 35 40 people maybe even more in the team on the understanding that that will enable them reliably to deliver the number of people that they feel they need for their typical rescues which might be 15 might be 10 might be 20 it depends on the type of rescue and hopefully it also delivers the spread of skill sets as well but it's certainly not guaranteed that you get certain skill sets there although if it's discovered that you need them then they will source them from somewhere fairly quickly and in terms of kit and equipment obviously teams pick their own stuff so there's going to be quite a variety when you see a, a mountain rescue Land Rover cutting past, what sort of stuff would you expect to be on board? So in terms of team kit, there will be stretchers that are capable of moving a patient from somewhere very remote and actually looking after them potentially up for 10, 12 hours in a stretcher and enable them to move over all the varied terrain that we have in Scotland. There will be casualty bags, bivy bags, foil bags of different sorts to actually make certain that just whether they're injured or not, we're looking after them and keeping them warm and protected from the elements when they're out there. There then will be a range of technical equipment, ropes, protective gear, belay gear. If it's winter, there'll be avalanche equipment on board. There'll be super bright torches, range of medical equipment which might vary a little bit from team to team but will sort of fall under primarily what teams are allowed to do under the CAS care scheme that we have but there may be some additional bits if you've got some professional medics in there and then there'll be GPSs, navigation stuff, mapping, search management. It's tending to become increasingly high tech so the radios that we've got now can track each person from within the vehicle so that you know exactly where they've been on the hill if you're coordinating the search and also you need to track them down and then you'll have the team members as well so they tend to be quite loaded and each team member will be probably kitted to look after themselves whatever the weather for at least 12 hours and possibly longer. It's certainly pretty impressive that MR teams seem to have the ability to make a pretty warm, comfortable operating environment, despite the fact that it's the middle of winter and it's an absolute hoolie outside and you're stuck on a remote bit of windblown rock with a sick person. I think in the end, the core bit of rescue, isn't it, is to actually turn up to that person, say, hey, I'm here, you are going to be all right, make certain that you can keep them warm and have a means to transport them back out. The medical side is kind of the icing on the cake, really, isn't it? And we spend a lot of time making certain that icing is fairly thick these days and that we can do some really quite impressive medicine on the hill. But actually, the core bit is find them, turn up, say they're going to be all right, get them warm and get them back down again to the professional medical services. We, we don't want to keep them and pass them all on. We're keen to get them to the professional medical services as soon as we can. It's quite a contrast when you look at the kit that your standard road ambulance carries for keeping somebody warm 
and the kit that most MR teams use, there's a huge improvement in, in our ability to keep folk warm on the hill now. And I think that's maybe an underused asset. Yeah, I think keep everyone warm, isn't it? I mean, it's the kit that our MRT team members are going up the hill in is really quite specialised these days. I mean, we did we did some calculations and we reckon that it, it's costing approximately sort of £5,000 to fully kit out an individual team member these days if you look at the full range of kit they need to look after themselves from summer through to winter. And the array of electronics that they now have on them is quite scary. But at its core, yeah, it's just really, really good quality clothing, gloves, hats, goggles, boots, and then the ability to take parallel kit up to look after other people that are on the hills and the the bothy bags and bivy bags that we're able to take up and that the speed that they heat people up at is, is quite incredible, as well as the work that's been done in insulation and our ability to keep somebody that's probably been pretty immobile for quite a few hours to at least sustain the temperature at the point where we find them, even though they might then remain immobile for quite a bit longer as we move them back down the hill. It's not something I think that people worry too much about anymore, that they're not able to keep somebody warm. I think we, we all feel pretty confident that whatever the weather, and it can be 60 miles an hour and wind chill of minus 20, minus 25 up there, the kit will still keep them warm and look after them. Absolutely. And I think it's probably worth just touching on the timescales you mentioned there, because I think given most folk are from basics are kind of roadside focused, we're not really talking about seconds and minutes here. We're talking about hours and potentially into into days yeah i mean we're talking about away from the road so i suppose there's two or three stages to it first of all mrs don't necessarily have quite the same speed of initial response as a professional service because we're not sat there in a rescue post waiting people are out and about getting on with their life and typically a, a call out will come in from the police although it might have been initiated by the ambulance service or the fire service or the coast guard but it will go through the police because they're our calling authority but people will be out getting on with their daily lives so how long it takes to get vehicles rolling i'm sure all teams aim for five or ten minutes but there's a little bit of luck of the draw on that depending on where people are that day how long does it take us to get to the nearest roadside point? Well, some teams have relatively compact patches and can turn up fairly quickly. Some teams have huge patches. I know in Oban, our patch stretches out to the Isle of Mull, so if there's a helicopter not available, we've got to first of all source a boat. The nearest bit for us to drive to is down in Campbelltown, which is sort of three, or Mull of Kintyre, which is three, three and a half hours drive. But most of the call-outs, you tend to have people near them, so you, you, you hope most of the time you're responding to the nearest roadside point within half an hour. But it's certainly not guaranteed. A, a lot of teams have some very big areas and very remote patches to cover. Once you get there, really depends how far the incident is up the hills. If helicopters are available, it makes a, a huge difference to the times that we're talking about in response. If a helicopter isn't available and it's boots on the ground... We do, a lot of teams have the capacity to have vehicles beyond the Land Rovers. So even when the Land Rovers come to a halt, they'll be able to deploy Polaris or snowmobiles or something to get them a bit closer. But at the end of the day, there'll probably be some walking to the really remote ones as well. And some bits of Scotland are really quite remote. <laughs> so it depends how far away people are from the roads. So you mentioned that everybody in MR got a kind of level of medical knowledge, uh, first aid plus a few extras using gases and defibrillation, that sort of thing. But you also mentioned CAS Care. Just run that past me. 
everyone in a rescue team will have a basic first aid certificate. Quite often they'll operate to quite a bit higher level than that because they're not doing their certificate and they're not doing any first aid for three years and then doing their two-day certificate again. Part of all teams, they'll have a regular and repeat medical training going on. So they tend to operate to quite a high level, even if they've only got the basic one. One of the unusual things for Mountain Rescue in the UK is that we have access to drugs that we can use on the hills, even though we aren't professional medics. And the way we get access to that is through a qualification called Casualty Care Certificate. So that's kind of a step up in the quality of medical knowledge and care that people can give. And it's really quite a challenging qualification for a volunteer to get these days. And it's certainly it's a big lump of work for them to get through and it's taken very seriously because the key drug I suppose that we are allowed to administer from that is morphine so because we've got access to opiates it is taken fairly seriously and there's been a lot of discussion over the years about the right of people to receive that level of pain care on the hills and the difficulty of getting the normal people who are able to administer that type of uh, drug to them so They've tried to strike a balance between providing that and training people as volunteers up to a standard where they feel safe to administer it in certain formats. And that's what casualty care is essentially there for, although it does add other drugs in to a limited extent. And they'll have certain procedures that they can do as well. You'll probably know more than me, but I think sometimes it floats in as similar to EMT or um, a medical technician, but you're probably better at indicating how it parallels into sort of more mainstream professional medicine yeah there are similarities there and i think that the key thing is that the casualty care exam is focused on practical things that guys can do on the hill to make the patient safe and keep them well until we can get them down to professional service so there's less emphasis on the finer points of diagnosis and more on the practical management of what's going to make a difference on the side of the hill Yeah, and what you can do in that environment as well, because you can take a surgeon with the highest skills possible up there, but if you're then sticking him on the side of a hillside and it's the middle of winter, there's a limited amount of kit that actually works there as well, isn't there? Absolutely. You mentioned morphine there. It's probably worth sort of clarifying that we're talking about intramuscular injections of morphine in a sort of bolus dose rather than what you would normally give roadside. And the logic being that these are guys who don't don't use these drugs very often and we were trying to walk a line between safety but also providing good quality analgesia on the side of the hill. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I don't think any of the volunteers are expected to be able to cannulate or anything at any point. That's a, a skill set that would be deemed to be beyond them. So it's been worked towards, I suppose, trying to make it as uh, simple and as safe as possible for people with that level and depth of knowledge to administer on the hill. Now, quite often, certainly in my patch, where we've had interactions with basics, has been your slightly more roadside jobs or when a sick patient is brought down to the road. And one of the great assets there is that we tend to have lots of bodies. The rescue team has got lots of pairs of hands that are pretty skilled and pretty good at moving and handling patients. Yeah, there is a slight weakness in there in that they are volunteers and they're not professional medics. But one of the strengths is that they're embedded in an organisation that will have professional medics in it and that is training and working with them on a regular basis. So to a certain extent, what they're very good at is supporting 
professional medics and knowing what they might want, understanding the language that they're going to use and being able to do the, the basic medical skills that will help that person get on with their job. And I guess in addition to that, they also add in both the sort of communications skills and also working around helicopters and, and that side of things that some of the guys on the roadside don't necessarily have. Yeah, I mean, they're all used to working with helicopters. They're all going to have radios and they're used to working in a group. And what, what they actually bring is manpower as well. So, you know, they, they can turn up and deliver you 12 people to carry somebody across a field with a stretcher that is designed to carry somebody perfectly safely across a field. So it's not just up the mountains, it's very much. If it's somewhere where access is challenging for you because it's not immediately by the roadside, an MRT will be able to deal with that access one for you and then either they will go with you and leave you to do the medicine while they help you with the transportation when you're ready or they'll go and get them and bring them back to you depending on whether you can get there. So they provide that manpower and access support as well. I just want to dive for a second and look at water because that's an area that a lot of folks don't realise that MR is involved with. Yeah, I think water's a little bit more complicated and there isn't really a national standard across the country. So some of the individual MRTs will do quite a lot of work in and around water in their areas and some maybe not do quite so much but there's very few these days that don't have trained swift water rescue technicians in them and that don't train on a regular basis to deal with water because as much as anything we get a lot of rain in the hills in Scotland and we have to know how to deal with rivers and cross them safely so they will have the skill set to work in and about water they will have the skill set and the rope skill set that's slightly different to more typical climbing rope work processes. Again, to work in and about water and in and about gorges if the access is difficult and look after people and bring patients back up and out from those areas. I guess it fits into that yeah, difficult access terrain, which has become our specialty. Yeah, and that might be it's a long way in and away from the road. It might be that it's steep climbing ground it might be that it's water it might be that it's winter it might be that it's just very very windy it might be that it's thick undergrowth or something if it's awkward to get from the road to that point then they will be able to deal with it so one of the things we've been asking all of our podcasters to do is to give three top tips for basics responders sort of interfacing with mountain rescue what would your suggestions be? First of all, notify early. Don't be frightened to ask for their assistance, even though you don't know definitively that you're going to need it. Um, and I think this is a difference between volunteers and professionals. I think the most frustrating thing for volunteers is to think they could have helped and not be called. They'd much rather be called and turned away than called late. So if you think you've got an issue where Emma might be of assistance, don't worry about the fact that you've called them and then actually you work out how to do it. Call them early. Think secondly, think access and manpower. That's really what they're bringing for you. They'll bring more people to back you up if you need that help and they will bring you access to just about anything that you need access to short of a burning building. And they will know how to fit in and support your medical requirements to look after the casualty. 
and they'll understand that it's sort of casualty centric and will work with you for what you wish to provide for that casualty. I think those would be the three things to remember. Fantastic. No, I think that's really useful and particularly for basics responders that have yet to share a job with a mountain rescue team. It's worth interfacing with them and training with them and certainly from my experience teams are always really keen to have medical professionals involved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you'll find every team will be delighted to have a chat and get involved and do some joint training. Well, I think it's always the case, isn't it? The more you talk to each other, the more time you have to do a little bit of work together, the easier it is to understand each other's slightly different operating approaches and fit in and work well together. Fantastic. Damon, thanks very much for taking us through how Scottish Mountain Rescue works and the kind of the generics of a, of a rescue team. Thank you for inviting me. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.